Well, as we get started, we are back in the Genesis series, and we are continuing through the rest of chapter 15 that uh, Lee started last week of the first six verses. We're going to finish out the chapter today, and I want you all to put on your imagination caps for a second and think back. For some of you, this will be really far. For some of you, it'll be like yesterday. Think back to grade one when you were very young. Today, there's, some of these children are here with us because it's family day weekend. Happy family day, everybody. And they're sitting here with us. And so for some of them, it's like, I'm in grade one. What are you talking about? Think back. But the rest of you think back. May have been a while ago. But when you were there and maybe you're sitting at lunch and you asked your friend for their candy and they promised you they'd give their candy tomorrow. Or you asked to play with a toy and they'd promised that you could do it a different day. Or you asked them to be your best friend and they said they would. What, what did you then do? Well, you looked at them with stern eyes and you said, yeah. But will you pinky promise? Because you see, when you're in grade one, the way that you know for sure that someone is serious is if they're willing to clasp their pinky with yours and say it again and pinky promise and swear upon the pinkies that they will do it, right? This is, this is the way it works when you're in grade one. And the amazing thing to me is this, that's the way it worked when I was in grade one, and I've never taught any further generations about this, and yet my daughter comes home and she's like, oh, pinky promise this. Oh, wow, yeah, it just gets passed on. We pass on pinky promises and we pass on yo mama jokes, and it goes generation after generation, and everyone knows them, even though no one teaches them except to their peers. But that year over year, hand down, and suddenly we've got pinky promises. They probably started like 500 years ago. It's probably like, you know, the people in Britain started pinky promises and then passed on. That's when they were drinking tea, right? So... Anyway, now we're sitting here and we have this way to handle things. And it's not just the kids in grade one doing piggy promises. We have adult methods of doing this too. People make promises, they make guarantees, we write stuff, we sign stuff, we initial 500 pages just to buy a car. We have all these different loan guarantees and backings and down payments and all this stuff because we have to find a way to deal with this incursed world where people screw up and people renege on their promises and people go back on stuff. And so we have different methods of guaranteeing stuff. When we have people in a court of law, we, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Shouldn't that have been the goal anyway? Well, we don't know. You might lie. You probably are possibly going to lie even after making that, that solemn oath. So we deal with a sin-cursed world with guarantees. We also have had in the past 500 years at least a high emphasis on science and study and evidence-based understanding of things because we're interested in the world, and so prove this, prove that. If I told you right now that there was, you know, a peacock was going to fly down and turn into a beautiful tree, you'd want me to prove that that was possible. You wouldn't just go, oh yeah, sure, of course. When, when we read other things, we search them out and try to prove them. These things help us in many ways to deal with a sin-cursed world where people screw up and where there are things that we don't understand. But these instincts toward prove it, towards guarantee, towards give me evidence they don't help us very much to know God well and to trust him. And what I I want to look at with you today, we're going to go back in time, and I want to take you on a journey. We're going to engage our imaginations, and we are going to look at this text. And remember, Genesis 15 was not written to you initially. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were initially written to the Israelites as they sat in the desert, as they were about to go in the promised land. The older generation that was freed from Egypt had died off due to their unbelief. The younger generation is now on the cusp. They're like, okay, here's the promised land. It's right over there and we're going to go. And Moses wrote these books to say, here's who we are. Here's what our history is. Here's what's happened. Here's what God has done. So I want you to go back with me to the desert. Sometime around 1445 BC. 
as we're sitting there in the desert, ready to go to the promised land. You're Israelites, there's sand under your feet. You're probably thirsty. You might have eaten manna this morning. You're wondering at what's coming next. And we're hearing of what happened with Abram. We're hearing what God did in the past. We're hearing of Father Abraham, who our identity derives from. As Israelites, it is, it is faith and it is blood that all the Israelites are from Abraham. So this is, as, they, as, as we as Israelites, as we're imagining this, hear this story, this is our identity. But as we hear this story, there are also so many questions. We're about to enter this promised land. Is this really going to work? There are so many Canaanites. Can this be done? I don't know. They were scared before and God punished them. Is it, is it okay? Are we going to be safe? Is God going to punish us? Are we going to get there and then eventually die? Are we going to last? Is the food really going to be as good as promised? Is it really going to be flowing with milk and honey? Is it really going to be flourishing? Would we be better off to stay here? Would we be better off to go to Egypt? I don't know. Is my, is my friend going to die while we're battling and taking this country? Am I going to die while we're doing this? What about my family? So many questions for these Israelites. So many questions for us today, too. Right? What about my finances? What about my kids' education and their future? And what about the economy? And what about wars? And what about viruses? What about computer viruses? What about my identity being stolen? What about so many things? There are concerns that trouble us. And even if we're not, I'll say negatively concerned, we might be positively concerned. We might be hopeful, yet nervous. And like when I, when I first asked my wife to, well, before she was my wife, to date me. We were driving home from an ultimate Frisbee tournament because ultimate is awesome. And we're sitting there in the car and it's like, okay, I'm going to ask her this thing. And I took the wrong route because I was nervous and I never do that. And she knew I was nervous. And I had evidence of our relationship that led me to believe she was almost certainly going to say that she wanted to do this. That she liked me. And yet I was nervous. There was like this eagerness combined with nervousness. Like, okay, cool. This will be good. But what if she doesn't say Yes. There's a strange tension within me, a positive sort of uncertainty. So we have our questions. Israelites have their questions. Let's, let's read and hear this text together as people wondering what comes next and hearing what God is doing. So I'm going to read all of uh, chapter 15 just to have the full context of what's going on. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall, not come, or they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. So, remembering some of what Lee introduced us to last week, thinking through Abraham's psyche as he's hearing this. Let's, let's go back to Canaan now, 1800s BC with Abraham. Hear this from God. He says, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. What's Abraham thinking? Why is God saying fear not? Is Abraham afraid that these kings that he defeated are going to come back and get him? Is it many years later and Abraham's just afraid of the surrounding nations in Canaan and afraid they might come get him? What is he wondering? What is he fearful of? Maybe he's just fearful of his own future and life. We don't know, but God says, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But it seems to be more than that. It's like God's trying to just draw Abraham's heart out and the concerns that he has. We don't, there's not much time that Abraham really seems to spend with God in terms of direct communication. It's not like God's with him every day saying, hey, Abraham, how are you doing? Here's another vision. There, there's these gaps in Abraham's longing and waiting and wondering. So God shows up and he says, hey, I'm your shield and reward, fear not. Abram says, well, what do you give me for I'm childless? So God has said, I'm protecting you. And he says, well, yeah, but what about the kid thing? I, I don't understand this, this child that you promised. So he's looking for evidence. He's looking for other connections on which to believe, other things he can assess. In some ways, it's kind of like the, the movie The Princess Bride. I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, so in the movie The Princess Bride, there's a guy named Wesley, and he's chasing down to rescue his love. And at one point, he's climbing up a cliff and he's going to be met by this guy named Inigo, who is going to kill him with a sword fight. And so he's climbing up, and Inigo is getting impatient. He's like, hey, can you, can you hurry? He's like, well, you want to throw me a rope? He's like, well, I'm only waiting to kill you. Well, yeah, I won't really want to be there. He's like, but I, I'll promise not to kill you. Yeah, I, you know what? I'll, I'll handle it on my own. Well, um, well, how can I convince you? Let's see. I'll give you my word as a Spaniard. Um, no, I've known too many Spaniards. No good. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll swear on the soul of my father. Okay, okay, throw me the rope. Now, what's he doing? Inigo's making reasons to believe. He's saying, well, based on this or based on that. And Wesley's saying, you know, I analyze that and I disagree. Oh, I analyze that. Okay, that one's good enough for me. Getting some external reasons, more than just Inigo's word that he won't kill him. Now, is this what Abram's looking for? We don't know exactly, but, but faith asks questions. Faith is curious. This is normal. As we're struggling through life, struggling to understand, faith is like, God, I, I don't understand this and I don't understand that. And what about... What about this, God? I, I trust you, and this is hard. And what's going on? And, and Abram's like, God, what? I'm childless, and and my heir is my servant, and I don't understand. So we have our own questions, just like this in the present day, right? God, this is going on. I don't understand. My my relative died, and I don't get it. I'm I'm worrisome all the time, and I don't get it. I'm struggling with this, and I don't get it. My wife doesn't like me. My husband doesn't like me. My kids don't like me. My finances are bad. All these things struggling with long bouts of depression. God, I don't understand this. Why? What can I do? These struggles we have, and God meets us. He met Abraham, but he met him in a very surprising way. He answered in a surprising way because he says, go outside and count the stars if you can. This is how many descendants you're going to have. Well, that, God, that's not like extra information, right? <laughs> like, it's not a, another thing for me to count on. But all you did is restate the promise. Or Peter Gentry said it this way in his commentary about it. 
At this point, all the Lord is doing is repeating the promise in grandiose terms. Yet Abraham is hanging on to this. So Abraham says, how can I know the promise is, is, is good? What are you going to give me? He says, I'm going to give you tons of kids, tons of descendants. Well, that's basically what you said before. But you know what, God? I'm going to trust you. God doesn't say, oh yeah, here comes Melchizedek. He's going to tell you other stories of things I've done. Or here comes this other guy. God doesn't even point to other faithfulness within Abraham's life. He says, Abram, I'm going to do this. And it's going to be this good. That's not exactly the same kind of answer as we might expect from an evidence-based, guarantee-based framework. So then, they continue on. The conversation's not over. This brings us to verses 7 through the end of the chapter, verse 20. And God says, you know what? Nah, there's still more. So, hey, Abram, I'm the Lord who brought you out to give you this land. And Abram's like, yeah, well, the land thing. God, how am I going to know about that one? So what does God do this time? Does he bring extra evidences? Does he bring extra connections? We continue along. He says, bring me these animals. Now, now, we're sitting in the desert as Israelites hearing this, and we go, oh, oh, he's going to do a covenant. He's bringing animals. It's like if you were to ask me to guarantee something today, and I said, well, give me a pen. Where do I sign? But it's, it's normal, like bring me the animals. Let's cut a covenant. That was the, the literal term, cutting a covenant, because then they're going to cut the animals. So he brings them these animals, and he cuts them in half, and he lays them out on the, on the table or on the ground or whatever it was, stone. He lays them out, and he's ready. Now this process, it's been described by Peter Gentry this way, so I'll just read this to summarize it for you. The ceremony of covenant making involves an oath in which the covenant partners bring the curse of death upon themselves if they are not faithful to the covenant relationship and its promises. Walking between the animals cut in half is a way of saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep my promises and my oath. So do you see this visually? We've got animals laid out on something, right? Stone, the ground, a table, whatever. And then the the covenant parties, they have their respective parts of the covenant and they walk through this. There's this blood coming out from the animals and they're walking through and they're saying, if I don't do this, my life's on the line. If I don't do this, may I be held accountable. We're cutting this covenant. It's a very serious and solemn thing. Okay, so this is what, we know this. As Israelites, this is what's gonna happen apparently. God's gonna take a covenant. Well, this is different. Normally humans do this. But God's gonna do it. But, but then verse 11 tells us the birds of prey were coming down the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So God didn't just instantly start this covenant after Abram got it prepared. There was some time throughout that day that God just kind of let it sit. And maybe Abram was going, wait, are are we doing something with the animals or were we just bringing them? I thought we were... But Abram's like, no, 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 we're we're doing this. God said for me to do this. So the birds of prey are going to like, we're going to have a feast because there's some cut animals. And Abram says, no. He's driving away saying, no, I'm protecting these animals I brought out to cut this covenant with God. I'm trusting him in this. So as the sun's going down, a deep sleep falls on Abraham. Okay, here we are sitting in the desert, a deep sleep. Where have we heard that? Oh, that was a few days ago when Moses was telling us about Adam. A deep sleep came on Adam. It's the only other time we've heard this ever in Genesis, this phrase, a deep sleep. God must be doing something big here. Because when a deep sleep happened to Adam, he brought Eve out. And a deep sleep happens to Abram. What's going on this time? Deep sleep came on him and dread, dread and fearful darkness came upon Abraham. Now, this happens regularly in the Bible when the presence of God comes that people are afraid. You think of Abraham, or uh, think about Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he says, I saw a vision of the Lord before me and I fell down saying, woe is me. I'm undone. When, when we're in the presence of God, 
it's not necessarily a super exciting thing. There's, there's a fear, there's an awe at the presence of God and it's, it's God's words, fear not, and it's God's reassurances that show us we're loved by him and we're cared for and that's why it's a, an okay and wonderful thing rather than just a totally freaked out of your skull thing. So fear and darkness, but then God speaks. Know for certain. Okay, Abraham said, how am I going to know? God starts off, know for certain. Okay, so he's going to give us some evidences or something. Here's the reasons you can know for certain. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and there'll be servants there and afflicted for 400 years. God, this doesn't yet sound like giving me the land. Uh, this sounds like pain and suffering. Like what's, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now listen to this as Israelites sitting in the desert. What is this? It's a recounting of, of the past history that your fathers and mothers and you, maybe, if you're old enough, have experienced. You'll go to sojourners in a land that's not theirs and be servants there. Egypt, we were slaves. Yeah, that happened. We'll be afflicted for 400 years. Yeah, that happened. That, that was a long time. But I'll bring judgment on the nation. The plagues happened. He, he freed us and we'll go out with great possessions. Yeah, because we just said, hey, Egyptians, can we have your stuff? And they said, please take it. Get out of here. And we plundered the Egyptians just by asking for stuff. As for you, Abraham, you'll go to your fathers in peace. He did. He died in peace. And you'll be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. <laughs> this is the fourth generation, guys, and we're sitting here ready to go in the promised land. All these things that God told Abram, which basically for Abram was just God saying, here's a little bit more detail of the same thing I've already told you. You will have the land. Your descendants will have the land. Well, now the Israelites are hearing this, and they're hearing some of this as past tense, like God has done these things. God has a track record we can count on, just like he said he would, that we can look forward in hope. So God's using this very human method of covenant making and using these forms to say, I'm serious about this, Abram, and here's what I'm promising you. But he's not giving other reasons, is he? He's still, he's still restating the promise in grandiose terms. He's still saying, it's this, and here's a little bit more of the detail of it. This reminds me a little bit of the movie Inception where the main character named Dom is a thief who steals information by using people's dreams. He gets into their dreams, he gets information, and he leaves. And he's going to be potentially hired by a guy named Sato for a really intense and complex job that might be dangerous. But Dom is in trouble with the law, can't get home, and needs his name cleared. Well, Sato says, I can clear your name. This leads to this interaction where Dom says, if I would do this, if I even could do this, I need a guarantee. How do I know you can deliver? Sado says, you don't, but I can. And I feel like this is kind of the response that, Abraham, or that God gives to Abraham. Abraham says, how do I know? What are you going to give me? What am I going to latch on to? And God says, you don't know, Abraham. Let's be real about this. But I can and I will. And let's make this really serious with this covenant. Let's make it every form you're used to. I will show you how serious I am. What God wanted Abram to know was not all these extra things. God wanted Abram to know that the glory of God is the proof of his word. The glory of God is the proof of his word, not something else, not extra things we could line up, not, not extra reasonings and proofs and evidences and all these things. His own glory, the manifestation of who he is, 
Now, I don't just mean by his glory a divine splendor that shines from the sky in a glowing cloud that looks like, you know, the sunlight or something. I mean all the manifestation of God's goodness. His glory, when you, when you see his love in Scripture, when you see Jesus healing people, loving people, caring for people, when you hear God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, when you see him over and over and over showing mercy and kindness to his people despite their sin, despite their turning away, when you see his glory as the eternal one who has never began and will never end, when you see his holiness on display as the one who is above all things, when you see he is the one who is outside time, we're, we're within time and God is outside of it, he sees it all. His glory as the greatest one in existence ever is the certainty of his word. Anything else that we might line up would be less certain. Do I know based on this third thing that I can assess and confirm it seems to make enough sense? Well, maybe you could, but it's more certain to know that God has said it. It's more certain to know that this glorious one has said this will come and that he is good for it. He has bound himself to this covenant. He said he is going to do it. There is your certainty is based on who he is. And part of what this challenges us with is the way that we respond to the promises of God reveals what we think about God himself. We don't get to divorce God himself from his promises and say, yeah, I trust God, he's amazing, but I'm not sure about these promises. I'm not sure what I really think about these. I'm not sure if he's really working all things out for my good. I'm not sure if he's really taking me to glory in eternity. When we question his promises, we question him. He has backed his promises by himself, by his existence. And so as Israel, we're seeing that with the promised land, he, he's good for it. He told us he's taken us to the promised land. He must be. He told us he's going to have us in this whole land. He's going to do it. So it builds up hope in Israel as they move forward. So now what about us? Let's hop back in our time machine and get back to Cloverdale in 2020. The desert's gone. It's not as hot. It's rainy outside. Although today it's not as much. What does this do for us? Look at the covenant again. I told you earlier, both parties walk through the cut animal pieces. Is that what happened here? No, in this one, God said, Abraham, deep sleep, dude. You're doing nothing. As Abraham sits there, we see in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, and from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of these peoples. So Abram did nothing. God walked through as a flaming torch and a glowing fire pot. The people of Israel would have easily recognized this. We've been led by fire and cloud through the desert, right? So this is God going through the pieces of the animals. He's saying, I'm on the line here. My part of this covenant, your part of this covenant, I'm on the line. And the people didn't get it. Right? The people continued to fail. The people continued to sin all throughout. But God was good for it. God was on the line and he said, this is going to happen and I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to take the fall. So what happened? We, we get to the New Testament and here's Jesus. So here's this quote from Ray Vanderlaan who he was talking about this passage in Genesis. When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have even considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. 
If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. We see this as God sets covenant with Abram and says, both sides are mine, Abram. Both sides. You're gonna fail. I know you're gonna fail. The people that, you, that descend from you are gonna fail. And I'm gonna be the one to take this. Jesus came and Jesus as a perfect representative of his people not only lived a perfect life but died on the cross and took this death that all the people never could have taken, never could have handled. God said, I can handle it. I can come. I can pay the price to rescue you. How serious is God about your salvation? How serious is God about your soul? Is he serious enough to give you extra evidences and things you can analyze? No, he's more serious than that. Jesus came and died for you. On the cross, he answered the question, yeah, but God, how do I know? You know because I'm here on the cross dying for you. You know because I'm this serious. Because here I am in your place. Because despite all your failures along the way and despite all the failures you'll have before you die someday as I'm working on you and perfecting you, I died for this. I made it right. We knew that God was never gonna fail. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Romans 3, 3 through 4, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true that everyone were a liar. God was always going to be faithful and we were gonna fail. <laughs> His people were gonna fail all throughout history to keep this covenant perfectly, to keep their side of the, of the setup. But God says, I'm gonna rescue you and you're gonna be a blessing to the nations. You're gonna reach out and show my glory. So the Israelites are going to show his glory by running to idols and by sinning and by doing all sorts of debauchery just like the nations around them. That's a failure. And God says, I've got this covered. How are you going to pay for it? Jesus. Now some of you, some of you don't believe in Jesus. Some of you don't want to follow Jesus. Some of you say, yeah, show me more. Some of you are in the camp that says, someday when I'm in heaven and he says, why didn't you believe in me? I'll say, lack of evidence. Show me a sign. Show me something different. And you need to be really careful. Jesus addressed this kind of idea in Matthew 16 and in multiple other places. But this is one example. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. By the sign of Jonah, Jesus means Jonah was buried in, in the whale, so to speak, or the big fish, and rose again a few days later. Jesus referenced that as kind of a picture of how he would be raised later. Jesus was going around doing all sorts of miracles, right? He was healing people, rescuing people, multiplying bread, all these things. Signs were happening on a regular basis, but the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came to test him. What sign will you give us, Jesus? How are you going to prove yourself? And Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. You see, I'm here and I'm, I'm God and I'm doing these things to love people and to care for people and to show how God interacts with a hurting world. You're trying to assess me, to critique me, to determine whether I'm valid. You're not in that place. God has said he will do these things. He's done all these things. He's promised all this. His greatness is beyond comprehension and we're going to say, I, I am your judge, God, show me a sign. It's not going to happen. Beware. 
lest you just fall and be doomed for eternity. Guys, you can follow Jesus and you get eternal life. God's promised it. He died to make it happen. Some of us are struggling. We're we're, we're believers in Jesus, have been for many years maybe even, and we're struggling through life because it's hard. We're struggling through life because it seems so long. We're struggling through life because stuff here is cool and it's fun and then it's also fruitless at times. And what do I do? You can count on God. You can count on Jesus for who he is, for his greatness. Do you know anyone greater? Is there anyone anywhere who is greater than God and what he has done? The author of Hebrews makes this point in Hebrews 6. He's talking about this story with Abraham and what God promised him. And he says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He had no one greater by whom to swear, so he said, see on my life. All throughout scripture, God says, as I live, declares the Lord, this will happen or that will happen. As I live, like, by my existence, I'm telling you the greatest thing that I can swear by or convince you by is the fact that I live and I'm God and this will happen. See, when we're, when we're looking for extra evidences to prove God that he must meet up to our standards, we're actually settling for a lower standard of certainty. When we're settling for evidences that I believe today, but information might change tomorrow and my understanding that information might change tomorrow and Science has been going for how long exploring the earth and we still don't understand most of what's really happening around us. And the theories change day by day, whether it's with regard to creation or psychology or whatever, it's different and it changes and we try to understand what's going on and we don't. And God says, guys, I understand it all. I'm beyond all this and, and I can bring you hope and comfort and love if you would turn to me. And we struggle and we say, God, I don't get it and this is hard and, and, and depression's hard or these life circumstances are hard or so many other struggles. My sin struggles are hard. I'm working through this or that. It's been long and God says, yes, I know it's been long and I'm here to help you and I have my reasons for doing this. I'm, I'm bringing you to glory. I'm working it out for your good. Will you trust me? He's calling you to look at his glory, at his greatness and see his glory as the proof of his word. He's calling, and I don't, mean, I don't mean that Christian faith doesn't make sense. It does, because this is the real world, and God really has made the world. And at the end of the day, there's all sorts of stuff that we go, yeah, see, this lines up, and that lines up, and it makes sense. But your point of trust isn't that you can prove God. Your point of trust is God and his existence, and what he points us to is him. When, when we're struggling with things in life and we're looking for comfort, oftentimes there's two different factors that make a big difference in whether we get comfort. One is whether it's actually really there and personal, and the other is whether it really means something, has something behind it. You, you think of, like, my, my wife sometimes, if she's having a hard day, my daughter Elena will come up to her and be like, here, Mommy, you can have my blanket. And then she'll sit up next to her and cuddle. Elena's a very emotionally sensitive child. That's really awesome. Now, what, what did Elena do? Did she give her intellectual information that convinced her everything's okay? No, nothing. She came... And she, she gives her a hug and a blanket. 
Some of you are striving for answers and longing to know everything and what you really need is a hug. Some of you want to know the how and the why and the what and the when. You need to know who. You need to rest in the comfort of what God is doing, that it's him doing it. But it also, when we're comforting people, sometimes it's the substance behind it that really matters. When we say, look to this or to that, is it actually helpful? If I'm struggling with financial issues and not sure how I'm going to pay these debts and a five-year-old nephew comes up with his piggy bank and says, here, it'll be okay. Uh, Thanks, kid, it's a sweet gesture, but your 15 cents really won't even buy me a Snickers bar these days. Right? It, it, like it's, it's sweet, and maybe it's comforting in a way, similar to Elena comforting my wife, but it also, like if I'm looking to that piggy bank as my solutions, it ends up empty, except for the 15 cents. So, but if my rich uncle, who I have a great relationship with, and he's loved me all these years, and he's a millionaire, billionaire, whatever, and he says, hey, I love you, it's gonna be okay. Well, there's, there's some substance behind this, right? He's got a lot of resources. I've got to develop a relationship with him where he cares. There, he might even be able to help me with some of my debts or whatever. Who knows? But, but he's got kind of this clout. So now you have the, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who holds your body together moment by moment, who holds all things together. Without his power, everything would just be unmade. He says to you, you're going to eternity if you follow Jesus. He says to you, all things will work out if you trust me. And yes, it might be hard along the way. There might be moments of joy. There might be pits of despair. But will you be with me? Will you trust me? He says that. He owns everything. What better hope can you have? His greatness, his goodness. Abram's confidence in the resurrection led him to brain-breaking conclusions at some points. Hebrews 11 comments on this when Abram was going to sacrifice Isaac. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, all your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's not normal. No one had been raised in Abraham's lifetime that we know of. No one had been raised pre-Abraham in Genesis at all, as far as we know. Abraham's conclusion, God's given me this kid. He's asking me to sacrifice him. I guess he's going to raise him from the dead. What does Abraham's brain say? No, you idiot. People don't rise from the dead. They die. They go to dust. Abraham says, no, no, God's good for it. I guess he's going to bring him back. What do we do in our struggles? What kind of hopes are we willing to have? And maybe we don't even get it. Maybe we're wrong. Abraham was wrong. God wasn't going to raise Isaac from the dead. He wasn't ultimately even going to die. God intervened and he said, hey, you trust me. Here's a ram instead. So he didn't have to raise him from the dead, literally. That's why the author of Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, he did. But what's he going to do in your life with your current trials, with your current joys, with your current struggles? What can you imagine as a way God might work this out? Maybe it won't be that way. Maybe it'll be a different way. But you know what? I hope in God, even when it breaks my brain to do so, even when it makes no sense because I know who God is, I trust him for who he is and what he says. So what will you do with God? That's the question you're brought up to here. You want other evidences? God says, I'm here. And I've stamped this approval of this promise with the fact of my blood on the cross. He says, I'm here and I'm the one that you trust in. What are you gonna do? You aren't following Jesus. What will you do? When will you look to him in turn? When will you come and believe and follow him to eternity? 
you are trusting in Jesus and you need hope, look to him, look to him every day. It's a struggle and it's hard many times or you're very distracted by so many distractions that we have in the culture around us. There are many, many ways that we can spend our time besides trusting in Jesus and none of them will fill your soul and give you ultimate health for hope. You see, when God made this old covenant with Abraham and other covenants along the line, he knew that there was a new covenant coming. I'd like to invite the band to come back down as we head toward communion and, and think about the new covenant that he brought. In Jeremiah 31, he, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant that's not like the one that, that the people broke in the past. God himself, he had put himself on the line to pay it, but then he also put himself on the line to bring it about where people would live right. He said in Ezekiel, I'll give a new heart so that they can keep my ways. He's going to be the one who empowers us to live for him, the one who empowers us to keep the covenant, to do it. And so then Jesus came. And in Luke, we read of the, of the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what Jesus did for us. And this is the sign he gave us to remember him by. The meal that we, that we take and remember Jesus died for us and he's coming again. He's gonna eat this meal again with us. We're gonna feast with the lamb in eternity for eternity. So as you come, remember these things. As you come, hope in God and in his goodness to you. Hope in the fact that he has staked his own reputation, his own life. As I live, says the Lord, this is what's happening.